Digital 410 proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts, Don Abernathy, Jeff Copsetta, and Henry Sledge. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast, and it seems like we were just here four days ago. Oh, that's right, we were. We were last live on Wednesday, which is kind of thrown off my week already. Um, yeah, it's kind of weird to have a great show and then... A few days later, come back and line up another show. But uh, joining us, as always, Mr. Henry Sledge. Henry, how are you doing tonight, sir? It, it is a little discombobulating, is it not? When when instead of our normal Monday, 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 we do Monday, Monday, Wednesday, and then Monday. Well, in this case, we went... I went Tuesday, Wednesday. You and I got together Saturday night and did a little recording... And then uh, tonight's Monday, and then we I got a show tomorrow. So, yeah, it, it really just kind of pushes the show together. Uh, Jeff cannot join us tonight, as some of y'all know. Uh, there's some crazy weather around the world, and some of it's landing in Jeff's area. Now, you all know Jeff lives in Texas, but what you don't know is Jeff lives in Texas. Like, Texas as in, like, hard-to-get-home internet. And so he joins us from sky-based internet, i.e. his hot spot and all that but with the snow and all the weird weather they're having um just it wasn't going to work out for him so hopefully he'll be back next week but uh henry and i are here and we're gonna bring some more fun to you i think henry i think what we should do is start off the show with what we recorded on saturday so that we can give everybody a heads up who are members of patreon and so they know what to look out for you have some of that ready to go oh yeah i'm cool. i'm on it now I'm, after the show i look forward to hearing it well, it's without any further ado, here we go. One of the really powerful things that I recall from the miniseries was how they represented one of my dad's favorite dogs, and that was his cocker spaniel named Deacon. Um, I remember my dad talking about Deacon many times as I was growing up, and I knew that my dad really liked cocker spaniels, but Deacon was, was just one of his special pets. And I mean, dogs were really important to us. Our dogs were like members of the family when I was growing up, and they were always like that to my dad when he was growing up. Son. Eugene, I'm, I'm sorry. part 10 when he gets the letter from my grandfather talking about how Deacon had been hit by a car and had managed to crawl home and died in my grandfather's arms and then my grandfather had to write my dad and tell him that and I mean they were they were like around Half Moon Hill somewhere in, in the mud fields of Okinawa still trying to crack the Shuri Heights area you know which was of course the the absolute bedrock of the Japanese defensive system on southern Okinawa. And it was there, you know, just sitting in a muddy, filthy foxhole when my dad got that letter from my grandfather telling him the deacon had died. Eugene? Gene? My dog died. I'm sorry. It was a good dog. How old was he? Got him as a pup about nine years ago. Maybe ten. They say dogs live what? Seven years to every one of ours? was just such a hard emotional time for him what do you think fella 
Well, it definitely, I mean, those are the right tracks. It's hard because there's no like background noise, no music, you know, it's tough just from the audio to really get the significance of that, man. I mean, there's a lot of dead air, I guess, but I no, mean, you what dead air, that. uh, that's your zoom. As you discovered last time, when you go back and listen to it, you'll hear all the background music. You'll hear everything you're looking for. It's just for okay. some reason well, I played well, zoom. Okay. But no, hey. um, and for y'all listening at home, that's just a hint. We got we got more things coming. Uh, that was an idea of Henry's, which I think was a great idea to try to present the audience some thoughts on, uh, you know, how the miniseries, you know, how his family felt about it and how certain things were portrayed and how he felt about it. So if you like that, keep tuning back in because we're going to have more of it coming. Sorry if I sound like I'm questioning your production skills. <sighs> no worries. Because that's not what I was doing. No, no I forgot. As soon as I said that, I'm like, yeah, man, it was the same way. And then when I listened to it on Spotify on the mm -hmm. way to work, it was like, yeah, it's perfect. I hear the Corsairs flying over. I hear, you know, all the background. I hear the gear clinking when they're marching down West Road. It, it And it really worked. It totally worked. So, yeah. No, I think uh, I think uh, Zoom takes out a lot of that thing that's background noise so that when people are having conferences – you know, mm -hmm. they don't hear all the stuff in the background. Like, I just had to get up and shut the door because one of my birds started screaming for whatever reason. But, well, uh, that really helps. <laughs> but, no, I think it turned out well. And um, the reason I also want to play it is you and I, we were probably recording for about an hour and a half or so Saturday night. And so for those of you who are members of the Patreon, and if you're not, head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com or D-410.com. Click on the Patreon link. Sign up and subscribe. It only costs you a dollar a month goes a long way to help out what we're doing here reason i bring all that up if you're a fan of podcasts or radio or voiceover work and you kind of want to take a look behind the curtain see how the the peanut butter is made um with the exception of some stuff i took out of there there's about a good 38 minute what we tend to call the og5 podcast but that's background it's you're sitting in with henry and i on the session how we come up with ideas henry telling me what he clips he wants to play so if you kind of want to see how that bit was produced and thought up Plus, the other one's coming down the road, a little sneak peek. Head over to Patreon, and that should be up sometime tomorrow. And uh, for those of you guys who are already there, you can enjoy that and download it through the app and listen to it at your leisure. So a uh, little extra treat for those of you guys who help support the channel in more ways than just listening. Yeah, and I mean, we're, we're, we're just trying to put stuff out there to add another dimension to the way that we engage with our, our passion for for the subject, you know, for World War II history. And we were always thinking of new things to do to, to try to keep it interesting. Absolutely. And if you guys want to reach out to us, because we've had some great emails coming in lately and we want to hear more, email us at mailcall at WTSPWorldWar2.com. And I figure while we're doing audio clips, hopefully this will come through. One of the things Jeff and I and Henry have talked about over the years is we try to talk about stuff that's not talked about a whole lot or beat over the head. We try to come up with new subject matters, but there's a lot of stuff that we're not exactly up to speed on. And one of the things I said, I don't know, probably eight or nine episodes ago is, I don't know too much on the uh, North Africa campaign. We don't talk about it a lot here. And it's just not in one of my strong wheelhouses. Are you big on that particular campaign? The Mediterranean theater, I would say, is definitely a weak spot for me. And it, it's funny you bring that up because my friend James Holland, uh, who, as you know, I'm reading his book, Big Week, uh, like last week and still reading it now. Uh, he has a book that he wrote on Sicily. And I listen to his podcast, him and Al Murray, quite a bit. They talk about Sicily, Italy, the Med, how that juxtaposes with the rest of you know because everything in world war ii is just like a massive puzzle with all these different pieces and everything interlocks maybe not directly but everything has a cascading effect in some way and, and as, he talks quite a bit about the mid and as the name implies which i think oftentimes gets overlooked the war happened more than just in the pacific and european theater um, exactly. Yeah. In this particular case, I don't know a whole lot about the uh, desert fighting in Egypt, Tobruk, North Africa, all those areas. And so I was going through Amazon this weekend, and I came across a little show that I was unaware of called Rogue Heroes. Are you familiar with this show? Are you yeah, familiar I've with heard the book? of it. 
It's based off it's based off the book and it's about the inception of the SAS, the British Special Air Services. Mm-hmm. And I'm gonna play the clip. If you're into World War II, but maybe your counterpart's not and they're tired of watching World War II based stuff, they'll enjoy this show because yes, it's World War II, and yes, it's authentic and it's semi biographical. At the beginning of every episode, it has a disclaimer. It says, all the events, as absurd and impractical as they may seem, are all mostly true. Because how the SAS came to life and how they got to be formed is a quandary of happenstance, comedy, and uh, right place at the wrong time. And so this series, it's on MGM um streaming service mgm plus but if you have an amazon prime account you can watch the first three episodes for free and then trial version for seven days and you just cancel it and you can watch all all six or seven episodes um but the reason reason i say this would be great for a counterpart who's not heavily in world war ii is yes it takes place in world war ii but it's done and it was styling as if you're watching a modern day show now if you're really hardcore into the nitpicking stuff Get over the fact that ACDC is pretty much the soundtrack. ACD, ACDC and Motorhead are pretty much the soundtracks on these episodes. Okay, that's really interesting because ACDC, as you know, is one of my all-time favorite rock bands. They are the soundtrack. ACDC and Motorhead, at least for the first four episodes. Like I said, it's World War II. The authenticity is there, but they try to modernize it to make it not seem dusty and history. It's like watching a modern-day show. And because of how things happen, there's some comedy written into it. Um, I'm going to play the trailer for it, and you can get a juxta of it, and then I'll give you guys a brief history. I don't want to go full into the SAS because it'll be spoiler alerts for this TV show, so maybe in a few you know, a few weeks or something we'll, we'll get a little more into it. But here is a sneak preview of the Netflix – I'm sorry, it's a series on Amazon who is streaming for MGM+. Plus. The world where there are no rules – no order, no organized plan. Certain men must take matters into their own hands. A map? Oh goodness, this must be serious. The Germans keep advancing while we fold our arms. I have an idea that might move the war in our favor. We're bringing together men of a particular caliber, and you are amongst them. Finally, I feel at home. Welcome to this new brigade, the SAS. Who are the SAS? You are the SAS. Special Air Service. British are losing the war, and I intend to do something about it. This is SAS Base Camp. We have a license to behave badly. <laughs> How many women have you slept with, Rob? Twelve, sir. Welcome to the SAS. We have only one order. Go. Kill. Return. Good evening. I hope I did no permanent damage. We are a long shot. A shot in the dark. But at least we are a shot. Hangover. Memories of Scotland. Let's go and win the war. You are mud. At last, he gets it. Being produced by Epic, it is streaming on MGM Plus, but you can watch it on Amazon Prime free trial. Um, it's great. Um, before we get, let me give you. I'm just going to give you a brief history of the SAS, and then we'll go into maybe the first episode or two. I don't want to give away a lot of spoilers, but um, just the type of comedy but truth that was in there. So we're going to skip to uh, the second paragraph on Wikipedia. The Special Air Services was a unit of the British Army during the Second World War that was formed on July. 1941 by David Sterling, who is one of the main stars in the TV show. Originally called the L Detachment, Special Air Services Brigade, the L designation, uh, 
and air service name being a tie-in to the British uh, disinformation campaign, trying to deceive the access into thinking that there was a paratrooper regiment with numerous units operating in the area. In the parentheses, the real SAS would prove to the access that the fake idea now existed. It was conceived as a commando force to operate behind enemy lines in North Africa campaign and initially consisted of five officers and 60 um, other ranks. In its very first mission on November 1941, they, parach- they parachuted into the desert to get behind the enemy lines of, of the German troops. And as they point out in the first episode, no one has ever parachuted at this point into the desert for very good reason. Mm-hmm. Unexpected, uncontrollable, unforeseen sandstorms, high winds, just it's not a place conducive to jump into. Um, let's see. So their very first mission, November 1941, was to parachute drop in uh, support of Operation Crusader Offensive. Due to the German resistance and adverse weather condition, the mission was a disaster. 22 men, a third of the unit, were killed and or captured. So this is the very first mission. They go out and parachute, and, the, and they literally jump into a sandstorm. It's mm-hmm. insane. Um, and the second mission was a major success, transported by the Long Range, um, sorry, the Long Range Desert Group, which is very cool to see them in action on the show. It attacked three airfields in Libya, destroying 60 aircraft without a single loss. In September 1942, it was renamed the first AASA, cons- uh, consisting at that time of four British squadrons, one free French, one Greek, and um, a, f- a Fobalt section. So this is a very cool show. I like the way it's done. Um, the very first scene, just to show you where the British Army was at that point in the war early on. I mean, it was early on for us, but it wasn't early on for them. The opening scene, there's a huge convoy just roaming through the desert, just driving through the desert, and all of a sudden they stop. And one of the uh, officers comes up to the front of the uh, convoy to the jeep at the head, and he's talking to his superior officer, and he's like, now would be a good time to bring up the petro truck, sir. And the officers are staring off into the off into the horizon. He's like, "Please tell me you brought petro trucks, sir." The officer looks at him and says, "No, I did not bring any petro trucks because I can assure you that every vehicle in this convoy has enough fuel to travel 500 kilometers." An exasperated soldier looks at him and says, "Sir." The target to which we are to pl- uh, the target to which we are to go to provide reinforcements and supplies is 500 miles. And the commander said, "Yes, but we have French working in the motor pool." And so things were such a quandary and such a cluster f that this area that they've been holding down for like 124 days against the Germans needed resupply and reinforcements. They sent a convoy of reinforcements, and because of language uh, communication errors, the trucks were fueled for a 500-kilometer travel when they had to go 500 miles. Now, for those of you who don't know exactly how that breaks down, just keep in mind, a 5K race is 3.2 miles. So you can do the math from there, how many Mm -hmm. hundreds of miles uh, that they were going to be short on delivering gas. And so what happens is, one of these commandos comes up with an idea. Hey, we've been getting a, taking a pounding here for 124 days. Uh, the higher ups, the command, they uh, uh, what they call General HQ, GHQ, just can't get mm-hmm. their act together. So he goes out of his way to bribe a dock worker to let him know and to mislabel some parachutes. And so they mislabel some parachutes. He goes picks them up, and him and one other uh, founding member who are was also a British commando. They were the first ones to ever do a jump in the desert because their whole thing was, let's prove this can be done. Then we can go to GHQ, tell them it can be done, that we've done it, and get permission to form this group. And they do the first jump, and one of them gets severely injured. And so it goes from there. But <laughs> as we're reading in this description, they're originally called the L Detachment Special Air Services Brigade, the L designation, and air service name being a tie-in to the British disinformation campaign. And one of the reasons for the disclaimer on the show about how things seem so ludicrous that they couldn't possibly be real, but they were, as these three guys and commanders were coming up with this idea to make the first desert parachute brigade, there's a, a commander in the disinformation realm who came up with the idea 
of kind of like we did with the Ghost Army before D-Day, spreading lies about this brigade that didn't exist and putting inflatable, you know, tanks and and tents and all that. So then when the Germans flew over, it looked like we had a brigade. Well, he had spent months spreading all this false information, leaving paperwork around, marked top secret, and hiring actors and designing uniforms and literally polluting the area with quote unquote mislocated top secret documents about this parachute brigade. And just so happens as these three guys are going to GHQ to try to get permission to start this, they're like, well, hey, our intelligence people are spreading this information about a non-existing group of parachutes. These guys want to form it. We know that it's going to be a catastrophe. We know they're going to have high, you know, losses. So what a better way to prove that this non-existing parachute brigade exists than when the Germans take prisoners or find dead bodies and them wearing uniforms. And so just how everything stacks up, but it's a damn good show. And it's, it's, even though it's epic and it's on MGM, it's all done by the BBC and it's all British production. The uniforms are right. So is it being made currently? It's on the air currently. It's, I'm already four episodes in. Are you, you know, from your standpoint, I mean, we're both, we both have a pretty good grip of, and all of our listeners do too, a pretty good grip of the subject. Of course, mm-hmm. you like what you're seeing. I mean, I you think feel it's like- great. Once again, there'll be people carved words with the, the modern music. Mon- I don't care. It's a great way to bring people in it. It's a great way to modernize the subject matter, but all the uniforms, all the, everything else is spot on. They just kind of, they just kind of give it that new, exciting way of watching it. Um, well, you- here, let me throw this out sure. there on the music. Okay. And then I haven't seen it yet, but you've got me curious. I really, I want to check this out. I will say this. So, did you say they use a good bit of ACDC? They do in the like battle montages. Like now, when they're at okay. when they're at a <clears throat> dance or a pool hall or whatever, they're playing of air nineteen thirties, nineteen forties music. So you'll well, hear the swing music and all that. But yeah. like when they're doing battle montages or training scenes, it's ACDC. There's one where them and the long range desert group are driving through the desert and they got Motorhead playing in the background because once again, it's a British production. Sure. Well, and I'm not fanboying on ACDC, although I certainly could, but I'm, I'm really going to make a point here from, I will tell you again, you know, it's no secret. I really listened to a lot of the James Holland. We have waste podcast. They had Brian Johnson on their show. Wow. Brian Johnson, as you know, as I'm sure our listeners know, is the lead singer of ACDC. And they, he, he is just on, on that point. Um, I think Brian, no cliff had a house out on here in Sanibel. So they, they, those ACDC has been known to run around this area down here. Okay. Well, Brian Johnson is a World War II fanatic. Nice. Like his uncle, of course, it's really, he speaks in this really heavy Irish brogue. I mean, it's, it's an education to itself to listen to him and try to understand what he's saying. You know, and his voice is obviously pretty frayed and cracked from, you know, 50 years of screaming into a microphone and race car driving Um, brilliantly. We might add, but uh, it's, he, he speaks about his uncle, who was like an Irish airborne guy or something. But, I mean, the, he is big time into World War II history. And, I mean, so much so that James Holland and Al Murray had him on their show. That's great. So, I'm, I'm just throwing that out there. that So, that that's kind of a little, you know, a little finger hold on, okay, well, it's cool that they picked ACDC to kind of – I mean, I'm really – you've got to be curious here because for two things, because – Oh, and the Sex Pistols is an and because once again it's a British production, and so you get the you know the British punk and British hard rock sound, you know that whole thing. Well, so. I, I'm a Sex Pistols fan too. Yeah. I gotta be honest, but it's a, it's a good show. I like I I binge watch four episodes. Here, here here's how good of a show it is. I'm not a big fanboy of trial trial viewing crap, but I watched mm-hmm. the first three episodes. I'm like, what the hell? And so I signed up. I I signed up for the seven day trial, and then I set a reminder on my phone on day seven to go cancel it. But I, I, I literally signed up so I can watch this, this entire show. It's a great show. It's well done. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that. Because, it, I mean, and, and here we are in 2023, and I love the fact that obviously there's still some interest in World War II. Mm-hmm. I mean, we know there is because we have listeners, and, and we want more listeners, and we're, we're here doing what we do because we love it, Don. But I love to think that somebody is willing to fork over millions and millions of dollars to make a show in this day and age, about World War II. And and I'm speaking, you know, we, we know Masters of the Air is coming, right? Yep. I yep. mean, that's that's coming down the pipe. We know that. But so we're talking rogue heroes. I mean, that's cool. And I'm, 
I really need to, to kind of get more going on the Mediterranean theater too. I want to read the book and give J- me some source material. JT rocker 99 on YouTube. You said kind of like Peaky Blinders. It's funny you say that it's produced by the same people who produce Peaky Blinders. So yes, it, it has that Peaky Blinders. You never seen Peaky Blinders, right? I have not. It's a night. It's post world war one. All the guys come home. They're, um, they're British and uh, some Irish, but British, uh, street gang members. And so it's post World War One, and they have some modern music in there. And even though it takes place in you know the twenties and thirties, they mo- that you feel like it takes place kind of now. Um, they they do a really good job of taking the the grainy feel away from the history and, and making it feel like you know oh it's like watching Sons Anarchy, but it's in the twenties. It's same producers. It's a big budget thing. I'm like watching this. I'm like that that's not filmed on a soundstage. I think they actually went into Egypt and found some of these old ruins of these old school forts and that to shoot there. Cause it's, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's a great show. And yeah, uh, give me, you may have already, I don't think you just answered this. Can, can you give me some source book? Source yeah, material? It's, 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 it comes from the book rogue heroes. They, they produce it for TV based off the book. Who, who wrote that? I don't know. Let's look rogue. Heroes, I should know that the book SAS rogue heroes. Here we go. Um, Let's just go down to Amazon. Shop Rogue Heroes and Amazon Official. And there's the show. Uh, Rogue Heroes. Rogue Heroes, the history of the SSA, SAS Britain's secret special forces unit that sabotaged the Nazis and changed the nature of the war by Ben McInerney in Random House Audio. Is it Ben McIntyre? Uh, yeah. Sorry, it's spelled a little weird. Yeah, M-A-C-I-N-T-Y-R-E. That, that may be, actually, I think he did the audio book. Um, hold on. Yeah, uh, I can't see. No, I said read by the author. I'm trying to figure out who the author is. Oh, Ben, uh, if ben, it's McIntyre. ben McIntyre. Yeah, author and narrator. Okay, so check it out. I met Ben at the World War II conference back in November. Get him on the show. I want to talk. To, I want to talk about the SAS. If you have, okay, I'll, I'll reach I out. I met to him. him. I don't know that I have his email address. I mean, we he gave the keynote address because he wrote the book. My wife is actually reading it now on the the Colditz Castle, okay. where they kept prisoners of war. Yeah, the prisoners of Colditz. I mean, I may be getting the name wrong because she's reading it first. Then I want to read it. Absolutely delightful British guy. Wonderful sense of humor. Incredibly articulate. Very prolific. Um, so he wrote the book Rogue Heroes. Yes, and it's it's, it's such a good show. Um, I'll try to reach out to him. I I met him. I mean. Probably the way what I need to do is because I didn't like get his phone number. Or we'll say this like for off the air, but yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it off the air. But yeah, it'd be great okay. to have him on the show. But yeah, so if you guys um, haven't seen this yet, it's on Amazon Video. Like I said, the first three episodes you can watch, and then you just sign up for the trial version at MGM Plus um, because it's an epic production. BBC. I, I I'll be interested to see where it's shot on site because what they do is they parachute in right. Mm-hmm. They lost half their guys, as I, I read, and then the um, long-range desert team takes them out to the middle of nowhere. It's basically 300 miles from the Germans, 300 miles, and th- they are literally a no-man's group. Um, they're only given three vehicles, and everything else is up to them. Any of the resources they have to steal, um, they have no. Their whole, they have no um, mission statement. They have no uh, hierarchy. They they're just literally on their own. It's a new group and they're just sent out there to make their own plans and make their own way. It's, mm-hmm. it's pretty crazy. And, uh, I'm intrigued. Yeah. I'm very intrigued. I, like I said, I after I watch the show, I'm going to read it. I'm going to order this book on Amazon. Um, well, I want to start checking out the show yeah. and read the book, yeah. and especially since I met Ben. The show is well done. And I like, I'm watching some of these scenes like where they're at, uh, Oh, it's this, Casablanca style, you know, club in Cairo. Mm-hmm. And after doing, you know, uh, background work and the right stuff, I'm like watching some of these scenes. Like I can just see how they shot that that day, but no, it's, it's, it's a good show. It's, it's, it's funny. It's funny as hell. And well, I'm, I'm intrigued. Yeah. I was super excited. I, I'm like, I think it's only seven or eight episodes, which is a little bit of a bummer, but, 
you know, it is based off the book and it's, but you're saying it's being made now. No, it's, it's on the air now. It's not being made. It's, you can watch the show now. So they've made it. Okay. Yeah. It's, okay. No, what I'm saying is it streams on MGM plus, but you can mm-hmm. watch it on Amazon prime video. You can watch the first three episodes and then you sign up for the seven day trial for MGM plus and you can watch the rest of them. Okay. And you just got to remind yourself to, unless you want to pay for MGM plus, but if not, you got to remind yourself to cancel it, which is easy to do through Amazon. You just go to Amazon get a subscriptions and hit cancel. Well, and it, it will probably be distributed out more widely as time goes on, too. It, it could very well, because once again, it's an epic. Epic is um, obviously owned by MGM, but I think that's a that's a channel you can get, like um, kind of like HBO Showtime. Some of the cable providers offer it, so mm-hmm. um, I know Epic created it, but it's a good show. I would love to see it get a wide release. Hmm. I'm I'm very interested. Do, 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 do. And, and and it makes me want to learn more about the Mediterranean theater too because like I said earlier I just I mean I've always known you know Rommel the Desert Fox of course Rommel ended up going back to Normandy but um, the, the Mediterranean theater is just not my area of you know I just haven't read that much on it and that's kind of the exciting thing about World War II is after you read a lot about a particular area you can just throw a dart at a map and okay let's start reading about what happened here yeah no kidding i mean it's all there man if you like if you like world war ii airplanes you've got german messer schmidt 109s painted in that desert mm-hmm. paint scheme and and, and you know blow the hell out of the show tanks and yeah because that's mean, it's all there kind of their mission is they figure you know they haven't been successful bombing these airports from above They've been having a hard time fighting them in dogfights, and so their whole thing is we're going to blow them up on the ground. That's why they're there. So their whole mm-hmm. thing is let's go blow. And interestingly enough, today's January 30th. Wow, this month flew by. Uh, this day in history, 1943, January 30th, 1943, the British Royal Air Force begins bombing Berlin, Germany. The assault that coincides with Adolf Hitler's 10th anniversary as the German chancellor was a massive daytime raid. So that happened today in 1943. Interesting. So what do you got on your list there, fella? Well, I mean, that what you just said was the perfect, the absolute perfect segue. And I bet you planned it that way, didn't you? Oh, yes, because we're all perfect show prep here. <laughs> the perfect segue, because I'm still reading James Holland's book, Big Week, the biggest air battle, World War II. You know, so I'm kind of channeling on B-24s and B-17s flying over the Reich, flying out of Germany. I've got, if I can turn it, to get for people who are watching, obviously our listeners can't see this, but I've got this thing's showing some wear. I'm not just super pleased with the way the oxygen mask is showing some dry rot, but this is a mannequin head. I've got an A14 oxygen mask, um, an Air Corps flight helmet, and the B8 one-piece rubber goggles. Got this from a collector hmm, probably about 20 years ago. But uh, it's even still got the radio cord coming nice. out the back of the helmet. So, I mean, this was this is just in the back shelf of a closet. I had to dig it out from behind a bunch of clothes to get it down. But one day I hope to have a place where I can display this kind of stuff because right now I just don't have that luxury. But uh, that's to just kind of have a little visual there. But I want to pause real yeah. quick just because you said the rubber's cracking out. And I actually have one of those masks that was given to me. Same thing. Too bad Jeff's not here because if anybody on this podcast would know how to slow down the aging process of air core gear, it'd be the guy who works for an air museum. So I would send Jeff a text and say, hey, what can I treat this mask with to slow down the aging process and the delamination of the rubber? Yeah, I mean, this thing's been on the back shelf of a closet. You know, I haven't looked at it in a while. And I mean, I see one of the straps has just completely failed on it. Yeah, mine's the same way. Ah, damn it. But hey, what? so... With that great segue you had and then me providing a little visual taster there, uh, would it be okay if I just read a, some select passages from Big Week? Absolutely. Go ahead. I'll read one and we'll talk. Sure. You know, we'll just get the discussion. Let's just jump right in here. So if you were a bomber pilot in World War II, if you joined the Air Corps, be it as a navigator, a radio operator, a tail gunner, a waste gunner, a pilot, a co-pilot, before you could do anything, you had to get in theater. This little paragraph right here goes into some detail on how the 445th Bomb Group just got there, just got to Europe. 
Meanwhile, at Tibbenham, the newly arrived members of the 445th Bomb Group were settling into their new environment and working up to go into action. The crews had flown over in their longer-range B-24s using a route from Florida south to Puerto Rico, British Guyana, and Brazil, now an ally, then across the Atlantic to Dakar in West Africa, on to Morocco, and then north to England. It took two weeks, and Captain Jimmy Stewart had flown much of the, that's the actor, Jimmy Stewart, had flown much of the way himself, riding with Lieutenant Lloyd Sherrard's crew. They had lost one crew, the Sunflower Sioux, which had also been carrying a further four passengers, including Stewart's master sergeant. Out over the Atlantic, <clears throat> they had given a mayday, then disappeared. One of Stewart's first tasks on reaching Tibbenham was to write letters to the families of the 14 men who had been lost, possibly the most unenviable task of an air commander. Cold and wet, Tibbenham, and this is just one more paragraph describing the general conditions of the base. Cold and wet, Tibbenham, like all other air bases, covered a vast area that included accommodation for some 6,000 men, as well as all the offices, ammunition dumps, fuel stores, firing butts, hangars, and workshops. In many ways, airfields such as Tibbenham were like small new towns. Hastily built concrete roads linked the various parts of the complex, but plenty of rough tracks, puddles, and mud remained. Their last staging post had been Marrakesh. The contrast could not have been starker. Stewart was sharing quarters with Captain Howard Kreidler, CO of the 701st Bomb Squadron, in a flat-roofed concrete and brick barracks block. It was basic with a single Franklin stove for heat, which they soon got working, but better than the Nissan and Quonset huts that housed the majority of crews. It's, it, it blows my head. We often forget how many of our quote-unquote celebrities um, served in the war. I'm talking about Jimmy Stewart. And... Um, Clark Gable. Clark Gable. Um, oh, what was the uh, reporter who would always do like the last twenty minutes, like last ten minutes on sixty minutes in his? Oh, Andy. And, um, Andy Rooney. Andy Rooney. Yeah. Yeah. Um, not to roll back, but I was doing a little Google searching. So Rogue Heroes. This is a little crazy. It's only twenty twenty three right now, right? Mm -hmm. Rogue Heroes mm -hmm. season one came out in twenty twenty two. There's already DVD box sets of it on eBay and Amazon. Hmm. So I'm going to look into that. I'll let you know if it's it's related. That way, if you can't find it on Amazon, we just you know. Let me yeah. Let me know. So the first the paragraph I just read, the thing that jumps out at me, man. I mean, I'm you know we we you can talk about the equipment itself, but the logistics that I just described. I mean, that route just to get from the United States to Europe. Can you that that is just unbelievable. Well, not is it unbelievable, but it's all right where you just get in the plane and fly east. No, um, we were talking about winning a prayer last week, and Harry Crosby, who ended his career as like one of the best navigators in the Eighth Air Force, he was asked when heading home instead of taking a ship, they put him on a plane, and the lead navigator for the trip back home to the United States got sick and couldn't fly. And they asked him if he would do it. And he was nervous about doing it. He didn't think he could find her way back. And so first he said no. And then when it was going to lengthen the amount of time for him to get home until he found a navigator, he finally said, yeah, but he had to basically do a bunch of homework. Mm -hmm. he, had, he had to do, because navigating is more than just point and come. You have to know the wind speed and everything else. And yeah, dead reckoning. Dead yeah, reckoning and pilotage. all that stuff. Yeah, and so it takes more than just a pilot to and a compass to get to where you have to know a lot. And back then, um, I would love to know how those, what was it, the W36B computer? What was that? What, oh, they had an, well, I know when I took flying lessons, and I were obviously a long time after that, I had, back then they used, of course, everything's digitally computerized now, but the EA6B was what they used back then but now yeah. for those guys oh man i'm not sure you can do a quick google search on that right now if you can i think it looks like a giant protractor which is, it's insane yeah the flight computer of course the navy guys had you know the metal board navigation boards that they 
you know, they carried with them into the ready rooms and when went out strapped in the cockpits, they took them and slid it up under the instrument panel. But yeah, I'd love to have one of those. Well, like you said, the technology and or lack thereof, really. I mean, it was great technology for what they had, but by our comparison, your your car and your GPS in your car is is like a spaceship to to what they had back then. Oh, for for sure, you know, for sure. But but think about the skill, mm-hmm. you know, just the sheer skill. I mean, I my my hats off to the intelligence, the skill, the, the, the knowledge that those guys used. I mean, they didn't have the technology that we have now, you know, I mean, the, the, I just took my Subaru in this afternoon and had some, something done to it because it was showing a bunch of fault codes and warning lights. (laughs) Do I needed a firmware update? No, it actually wasn't that, but, um, I don't want to get into it to take precious minutes on our listeners. Don't want to hear about it, but the, it made me think of it because of the technology that it, it can provide information overflow, but at the same time, it's just it, in a way it kind of dumbs things down. I mean, back, back in those days, man, those guys had to know their aircraft. They mm-hmm. had, you know, hell you had a flight engineer whose job especially on the Lancaster because the British Lancaster, you know, their, their main heavy bomber, um, he had no co-pilot. You got one pilot, then you got a flight engineer who's sitting up there in that cockpit. His job is to manage all the gauges, all the levers, all the buttons and watch everything. So the pilot could just fly the damn airplane. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, just the, the mechanics, the, the complication of everything. I mean, the, it, the complexity of everything. It was, I just have so much respect for those guys. Well, as Henry Crosby pointed out in Wing and a Prayer, um, there's 10 guys per plane, right? It takes six guys per, it takes six crown, ground crew guys per person on that plane to keep one airplane up in the air. So basically every single plane had 60 guys working on one plane. Mm-hmm. So it took 60 ground crew guys, mechanics, what have you to who worked basically tirelessly when those planes came down they were working all night long loading them up repairing them doing everything they could make them flight worthy for the next mission Mm -hmm. and so it took a tremendous amount of work to keep those things up and then and imagine working far into the night when it's bitterly cold and you're in a drafty hangar and and you know uh, and when when i don't want to take away from your next comment but i got a a paragraph the next paragraph i wanted to read was describing their quarters yeah go ahead so picking up where I left off after the guys got over to Tibbenham, among those also settling in were the men of Bullet Serenade, piloted by Lieutenant George Wright. While Wright and his fellow officers had been put into a Quonson hut, the enlisted men had been allocated a Nissen hut. These cheap and easy to erect buildings looked like giant cylinders sliced in half and put on a concrete base with roofs and walls made from semicircular sheets of corrugated iron. The waste gunner and third engineer was Sergeant John Robbie Robinson from Memphis, Tennessee, who had turned 22 only that month. So this is going to be home, he thought, as he walked into their allotted hut. Six beds either side, brick walls at each end, two dangling light bulbs hanging on cords and a pot-bellied stove in the middle. Outside was an unfinished block that contained latrines, showers, and washstands, though no evidence of any hot water. That evening, they were issued only sea rations, a rather tasteless hash. It was Thanksgiving Day, 1943. And so you, you had a hierarchy per plane. You had the uh, the pilots, the co-pilots, the officers, if you will. They stayed in the Kwanzaa hut, the enlisted men, i.e. the gunners, the ball turret gunners, and they stayed in the Nensen hut. And as the aforementioned ground crew, unless it's snow and in blizzard conditions, they actually lived in pyramid tents. So mm-hmm. there was a clear hierarchy, like a decent place, halfway decent plate, tent. And it was it was strictly based on what your role was in that operations. Do you have another entry you want to go over? Oh, yeah. This is jumping ahead to talking about Adolf Galland, German Luftwaffe officer. Um some of his frustrations trying to deal with Adolf Hitler and just <laughs> just the general situation that they were facing. I can imagine. Um, let's see. All right, let's just jump in right here. Meanwhile, Galan's fighter pilots continued 
to take off and meet whatever incoming American missions were launched into the bleak winter weather. Second of JG Second, which included Heinz Noka's fifth Staffel, was now based at Plant Luna, southwest of Bremen. On 18 November, he led his Staffel against an, another American raid, but they failed to make an interception, and when it was turned to t- time to turn for home, the weather had closed in and the light began to fade. Worrying they wouldn't make it back to base, Noka radioed to the airfield of St. Tron in Belgium instead. Below, below, Holland and Belgium lay covered in snow after some heavy blizzards, and Noka was concerned about icing. It could badly affect the weight of the aircraft as well as the controls. He could feel his breath freezing on the inside of his oxygen mask. I can only imagine. I mean, just that last line, you could feel your oxygen freezing on the inside of your oxygen mask. And what a lot of people who aren't familiar with that, which I really wasn't until recently, is your clothes are plugged in with a cable. They have literally electric pajamas on underneath their their suits. And as you can imagine, um, your movement is limited by the length of that cord, that umbilical cord, if you will. And I can only imagine being like a waist gunner. You're spinning, you're moving, you're spinning and moving, but then you've got to rotate, maybe step a few steps away to grab a new camera ammo how quickly that mm-hmm. wire could become a, a hindrance. And then you'd have to unplug yeah. it long enough to sort yourself out, but then you get cold real quick and you got to plug it back in. And I can only imagine how long it took 6-volt pajamas to warm up back in. I don't think they're on 12-volt. I think they're probably on 6. And just the whole environment and being in that those those aircraft just – kind of as we mentioned before, it's the – aeronautical equivalent of being on a submarine almost except for the submarines are a whole lot bigger but it's just one of those you know and you had a little bit of a a, of a chance to survive if the unforeseen were to happen you know the you talk about the electrically heated flying suits i mean those things you know in 1943 Mm -hmm. i'm sure that they were prone to failure pretty pretty often yeah i'm gonna read a, a brief thing out of wing and a prayer because yeah, please. I think it's interesting when we hear groups doing things that you don't think to do. Perfect example. A lot of people didn't know until they read your father's book that, uh, oh, we got through Okinawa. They made us turn around and go pick up everything bigger than a 50 cal round. Great. We're doing cleanup. That's great for morale. But this was great for morale. And this is an awesome part of the story you never hear before. Uh, let me see. Really looking forward to reading this book that you got there. On April 20th, more attacks on railroad marshalling yards. On that day, the Soviet and American armies met at the Ebel River, and Germany was cut in half. There remained nothing for the 8th Air Force bomb group to hunt. What do we do now? On May 1st, the 100th went to Walkenburg. The lead bomb bombardier dropped parachutes containing large white crosses, which were to mark where... Our 37 planes at 400 feet would drop 71.7 tons of supplies. Over the Hague, our crew saw Dutch people on rooftops waving American and English flags. On, a- on May 1st, the Russians raised their flags over the rice stag. On that day, our, our, our crews flew over Holland at 500 feet and dumped 70 tons of 10 and 1 rations on the racetrack of the airfield near, near Hog. On May 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 5th, and 6th, we dropped more food. Coming back over, our crews reported that these were, quote, the most pleasant missions they had ever flown. On the ground, everywhere, people waving. Somehow they made huge signs in the field saying, thank you, Americans. I felt better about Operation Mana Cow Hound. I'm sorry, Mana Chow Hound. Mana being manna from heaven, which is what the British want to call it. Chow Hound is what we want to call it because it, it was basically a food and supply drop over all these areas that the Germans had occupied for so long. Now we ran out, ran them out of there, but the people, mm-hmm. there was still no food. I mean, they, the Germans had already consumed all of it. We also flew what we called revival missions, on which five-man crew would fly into Germany, land at a Luftwaffe base, pick up as many as 40 POWs, and bring them back to Paris. The 8th Air Force yeah. flew out 8,000 U.S. and 1,500 British. Many of our crew saw friends from the 100th, most of them had lost 40 or 50 pounds. On May 2nd, I'm sorry, May 2nd, 38 of our planes dropped 70 tons of supplies over Schiphol. 
Planes went over the drop area in single file, skimming the train, pulling up, and missing buildings and smokestacks. There was a heavy roar as pilots changed propeller pitch to adjust their altitude. All the crews took the supplies of fresh fruit. All the crews took their supply of fresh fruit, the fresh oranges that they had been, I'm sorry, the first oranges that had been seen in months to drop to the Dutch. They could see the faces of people waving and praying. On May 3rd, the 100th bomb dropped another 70 tons of supplies in Bergen and the same load of, over Hil Hilversum. The supplies were in burlap bags and our flyers saw them explode as they hit the ground. Reports came back from about, quote, happiness hats. During the war, the resistance and underground had to hide their parachutes since they were evidence of the American airmen coming down in the area and evidence that we had helped them. Now the silk came out, they were dyed vivid colors and fashioned into hats, scarves, skirts, so bright in color that we could see them from the air. Now they were proud symbols of those who had helped the escaped invaders from the Germany, from the Germans. And so it got to a point where after we ran the Germans out, let's start using our planes for supply drops. Yeah. And that's not, you know, that's one of those things you don't ever really hear about, but it's what we did. And, and they were talking about how they would take their supplies as well, like their candies and their chocolate bars, and they would save them up for like a week or so, all the guys, and then they would invite all the kids from the local town and have like parties for them so they can get this candy and these fruits and stuff and, and just, you know, try to help, not only help the community and help the kids, but help their spirit. Cause here they are, you know, for last year or so, depending on how many missions they flew. I mean, Henry, I mean, Harry flew, I think close to 32. Mm -hmm. um, when your job is just to indiscriminately bomb and destroy cities. Now you have a chance to kind of, instead of take life, kind of try to rebuild it in your own little way by yeah. providing sustenance and um, food mm -hmm. and supplies to people who've been beaten down and taken advantage of for so long by the Germans. And I'd read also of what you just passed over there about how they started flying POWs mm -hmm. around trying to get people, you know, replaced into their proper uh, helping American guys get home or, or you know. Or they're whatever. really sick. It's a quicker way to get them to a, a more uh, well-equipped hospital with better surgeons than throwing them on a deuce and a half and driving them over bumpy roads and, and taking a long road. Uh, of course, road. yeah. But on that note, we've been reading a lot of books. Um, I know you're reading the one uh, you spoke of earlier. You and I were talking on Saturday. I just finished Winging a Prayer, and Harry Crosby's writing style is so good that I then went to The Deep Woods by Eisenhower's Boy. That was mentioned in The Longest Winter, and so I went out and bought it, and I know one of our uh, listeners said they bought it too. And I jumped into that book, and I had to pull out of it. I'm um, not saying it's a bad book. The writing styles are so different from coming from uh, Harry Crosby's Wing and a Prayer to a book where the first chapter is quoting, you know, newspaper articles and just a lot of logistics and not firsthand account stuff. I know it gets in the firsthand account. So mm -hmm. it was such a juxtaposition. It's almost got a, a, you know, a proverbial nosebleed. So instead I went back to the care package of one Jeff Copsetta in the books he sent. And uh, we've all seen the movie, but I was interested to read the book, and so I started The Longest Day. And so I'm still staying in the European theater, but I'm going back on the ground and reading The Longest Day, which is very interesting because, as they point out in the forwarder, uh, Cornelius Ryan had access to a lot of um, German paperwork, diaries and such. Mm -hmm. And so as you're reading this, he transitions back and forth between what's going on on the Allies' side and on the German side, but he doesn't write it in which, as we often talk about, a lot of people do, you don't have boogeyman syndrome on here. You know, it's, here's what's going on, and here's some people's thoughts on Hitler and how, you know, he was messing things up. Here's what was going on with Hitler. And so it goes back and forth explaining why the Atlantic Wall, quote-unquote, wasn't as fortified as they wanted it to be because up to a certain point they thought the war had been won, and so why waste of resources? And then as time got closer and closer to D-Day, they started getting more paranoid. And Hitler basically called out all out front as let's get the Atlantic Wall done. And so they started pouring all these resources and sadly slave labor into building all these concrete reinforcements that luckily for us, it happened this way. Mm -hmm. um, basically because they last minute Johnny 
They didn't have enough concrete to do all the things they needed to do. They didn't have enough steel to make the um, the big guns rotate and move. Basically, that's why a lot of them were fixed. They only went up and down and moved a little bit to left right because they cobbled this stuff together so many at the last moment that they didn't have the resources. Concrete was hard to find. Steel was hard and, to find. And the quality of the concrete they had was not that good. Yeah, and the fact that you have slave laborers building it. They're not exactly uh, you know, putting their their best interest into it. They kind of want you to sure. fail. And so a lot of that stuff came to our advantage. I mean, could you imagine how much, how the the naval, the cost the Navy could have possibly taken during D-Day if those large cannons were able to articulate and have a better range of motion instead of being kind of stationary? Definitely. You know, when you, you bring up, it made me realize something, and I got an idea, not for tonight, but for another show talking about, and it would go well if you're reading The Longest Day as you move forward in that. I have, and actually my buddy John McManus sent it to me, well, not, not the actual paper document, it was, it's an image, a picture of it, a questionnaire that Cornelius Ryan, this is like back in 1967, 68, maybe 1970, uh, probably getting ready, researching that very book mm-hmm. that he sent, you know, he sent it to thousands and thousands and thousands of soldiers, okay, of veterans one of whom was my uncle, really? my, my uncle Edward, who you've heard me talk about it on this show, my yep. dad's older brother. He was a tank platoon commander in the 741st Tank Battalion and landed at Normandy, fought his way across. My, I saw John McManus dug it up where my uncle answered that questionnaire. Wow. It's about a three-page. That's awesome. I, I'm telling you, it, we could do a show on that. Yeah, I'm actually looking through the forwarder because in the book it says – that during his planning on this book, he basically, um, I think, not, not he did the same thing in the United States, but over in Europe and Germany, he I think they said he posted over 350 um, oh, what's the, back, back in my day, we had newspapers, and in the newspaper, you would have um, the listing of jobs and and all, the classifieds? Yeah, he he basically posted like over 350 different classified ads trying to uh, looking for World War II vets, and he said they had like 6,000 responses. And like out of those 6,000, he he basically took in the 1,300 that had the most detail, and mm-hmm. and plus sending out all those like your your uncle got. And so that's cool that you actually have a copy of not only that questionnaire but your your uncle's handwriting filling it out. That's awesome. Well, it's, it's, it's unfortunately because the, the actual document is archived, but I've got a good and John McManus sent me a good enough, uh, you know, good enough pictures of it that I've, I've got it on my computer. Yeah. And we, I'm telling you that we could do a show just reading that. Yeah, and you, we could just go back and forth, volley back and forth on the longest day. Sure. And, you know, leaven it up with some questions from that questionnaire and my uncle's answers because I read through it. It's it's about maybe four pages, um, and it's some really – it really was enlightening to me. It helped me understand – it answered some questions. You know, it, it that'd, be, that'd be a great little show right there. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. But um, I think that's pretty much everything I have. Anything else you want to go over before we call it quits? No. I, I think, uh, you know, there's – I'm – here in big week i am on page 181 i got a ways to go yet so you know maybe i mean the cool thing is man we could just toss a paragraph in from our favorite book and move on with a discussion whether it's about that or something else i mean it's all just this this great stew that we like to consume you know and a little update for the stickers and a lot of you all who signed up for patrons wait where are my stickers at i've been I've been working on them, and the delay has been the font on our slug line, the your new your favorite World War Two based podcast. Um, the smaller sticker gets, the smaller that bottom font gets, and so I've actually had to change the font. But I got a good batch of them I'm sending out, so um, some of you will be getting them sent out this week, and they will be in the mail. And but um, I've been <laughs> I've been going through a lot of uh, quality control and research and development on the best way to go about making these stickers and changing the font a little bit on just the slug line. Cause I, the original font is stencil, but they just, it, the vinyl just falls apart. So for those of you who are signed up waiting for your stickers, they're coming your way. I promise each one of them is made by love and frustration here in the, uh, what's the scuttlebutt podcast studio by yours truly. 
uh, we will get those out to you guys. But I want to thank each and every one of you for your continued support. And um, thank you guys for sending us emails and watching us on YouTube. JT Rocker's here every Monday. He's always hanging out in the comments. I want to thank him. And for the rest of you who watch it in real time and in post time, you can go back and watch the video at any time and leave comments and we will go back. And so even if you're not watching live or watching it later, please feel free to leave a comment and we will uh, answer it back and get back to you. But for myself, Henry, and Jeff Copsetto, we want to thank each and every one of you. And we will be back um, Monday. Yeah, sounds like a good thing. Yeah, we'll shoot for Monday. See you all later. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>